There's this whole world of banking regulation and financial regulation that is super fascinating. The reason that we're focusing on regulation as an important aspect of building an economy that functions effectively is that it is one of the pillars of trickle-down economics. You know, what we say is trickle-down economics is wage suppression for the poor, tax cuts for the rich, and deregulation for the powerful. The regulation of this system remains a mess. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Jessen Farrell, and I'm senior vice president at Civic Ventures and a former state legislator. Today, we're diving into the world of regulation and deregulation, and specifically banking deregulation. You know, the reason that we're focusing on regulation as an important aspect of building an economy that functions effectively is that it is one of the pillars of trickle-down economics. That, you know, what we say is trickle-down economics is wage suppression for the poor, tax cuts for the rich, and deregulation for the powerful. And that that idea that the less constrained the powerful will be, the better it will be for everyone, uh, is one of the oldest uh, lies told by powerful elites in human societies. But as our, you know, as our friend, the philosopher Elizabeth Anderson reminded us in the podcast we did with her, there is no such thing as less or more regulation. The only question is, are the powerful getting more powerful, less powerful, <laughs> right? That's it. And so the idea that more regulation will be by, by definition bad is, is prima facie absurd. Of course, of course it's not. You know, I think that when we talk about regulating markets, there is no more consequential domain within which regulation needs to be applied than the financial system, uh, because it has such incredible, uh, such a wide spread effect on the overall economy. The really interesting thing about this, of course, is that, you know, who is it that regulation favors? And of course, in the trickle down mindset, it is to favor the powerful. And yeah. we often say, of course, deregulation for the powerful, but really it is around regulating in a way so that the powerful can get away with and do what they want to. Yeah. And in the banking industry and in the banking sector, the real question is how are regular individuals and small business owners being protected. And and the other thing that's on my mind too is how about those people that don't even have access to banking relationships, you know, right. and have to go to payday lenders, for example, and pay really exorbitant fees. So there's this whole world of banking regulation and financial regulation that is super fascinating. Yeah. And it won't surprise listeners to learn that the finance industry and the world of academics and policymakers and regulators who interface with it is home to the just the worst kind of neoliberalism and trickle-down economics. These are folks for whom any constraint on the ability of Wall Street executives to earn greater bonuses that's, you know, the most evil thing in the whole wide world. And uh, you know, I think what we'll learn is that anytime you want to do anything sensible to make the system more stable uh, or work better for ordinary consumers, 
uh, you will hear that the whole financial system will collapse if such a thing is enacted. But again, it's worth reminding everybody that it is incredibly clear that it was the widespread failure in financial regulation and supervision that was the principal cause of the 2008 financial crisis. And that financial crisis was entirely avoidable if we had taken a more sensible approach. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a direct line that can be drawn to action that was taken in the late 90s by Congress and signed into law by President Clinton. And then, you know, a decade later, the meltdown of the financial system that was based on a whole world around predatory loans and subprime loans and all of that that became possible because of deregulation in the late 90s. That's right. And, you know, the securitization of imaginary assets that went on during those days uh, that made banking executives insane bonuses, but, you know, basically bankrupted the world. It was just a, a shocking failure. So we're going to talk to Anat Admadi about the deregulation of the banking industry and how to make financial regulations work for society and individuals and not just for the rich and powerful. Anat is the George Parker Professor of Finance and Economics at Stanford University Graduate School of Business, and she is the co-author of a book called The Banker's New Clothes. My name is Anat Admati, and I am a sort of a recovering finance professor, if you want to say, from Stanford Graduate School of Business. I mean, I am a finance, still a finance professor here, but my interests have become extremely uh, much more broad uh, than, uh, than I, where I lived in my little bubble uh, before. I have a little tiny initiative here called Corporations and Society Initiative. I've become very interested in why capitalism and democracy are kind of failing us together. Let's start at a high level, because today we want to talk about the financial system, the finance industry, and the overarching problems with regulation in that industry. So can you kind of give us a picture of what's happening and what, what went wrong? Well, you know, when I stepped into banking as a sector, and I'm a finance professor, so we teach stuff, but the area of banking, banks as corporations are always considered very different and special. And when they tell you they're very special, you know, you oftentimes hear weird things from how they're special, but I'll, I'll just summarize to you my uh, observation on, on specialness, and that is they're special in all that they get away with. So they're special in the fact that they have a lot of privileges because it's through this banking system, and then, of course, all around it, the financial intermediation system, where, you know, we move money from some people to others, from people to, to businesses that need money for things, or from people to other people, you know, from we, through credit, what they call credit, credit being such a positive word in the language, and but it, you know, it could mean payday lending or it could mean other kind of lending. So it's just a passing money through a system, okay, a system of, of money. There are pipes in the system, there's monetary things in the system, and there's just loans and other investments, venture capital and, and Silicon Valley, all the way to, you know, a sovereign debt. So a financial system. And it's a global system now. It has some fantastically large corporations like J.P. Morgan Chase and other big banks, systemic banks. And of course, this system has all kinds of offshoots into what's called the shadow banking system. So it's basically a lot of other financial institutions that do 
bank-like things, you know, money market funds or, you know, lenders of various that are not banks and all this other stuff. And so people talk about the sort of the financial system is this interconnected system with some very large institutions and a whole bunch of other institutions. And then how this system functions, okay, where they make decisions and how it falls on all of us. And the bottom line on this system is it's very reckless as, as it is. In other words, the corporations within it are, you know, doing some things we need them to do. They are connected to government institutions or semi-government institutions like the central bank that's kind of their, you know, gives them a lot of tender loving care and makes sure that they have money in the ATMs and all of that, deposit insurance, FDIC, other regulators. But by now, this is a really, really complicated system, very interconnected and very, very fragile. And what we saw in the system, and that is beyond all the fraud and, 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 and other recklessness having to do with, you know, mortgages and with selling securitized uh, and super securitized contracts and derivatives and all of that before the financial crisis is it really kind of went crazy making bad loans and taking risks and having hidden risks that we couldn't see. And all of a sudden, uh, the regulators being blind to a lot of what was going on sort of imploded on us, you know, 12 years ago and imploded to the, sen to the extent that, you know, governments and central banks had to rush to the scene and, and, and provide all these spectacular bailouts that they did. And this system supposedly was supposed to be fixed after the financial crisis and we had Dodd-Frank and all of this would take a bit to unpack. But the bottom line was the regulation of this system remains a mess is the best one word description of it. It's a mess. Some of it is, is kind of overly complicated and stupid. Some of it is, is, and a lot of it is just sort of inadequate as well as being wasteful. It's like a, the worst mix of a regulation. And uh, so the whole ecosystem around it, and it, it sort of remains uh, virtually as dangerous as and as reckless as it was, just distorted and bloated and all sorts of things like that. Just why is it like that? Because it gets away with it, because it wants to and can. And the bottom line is we somehow are made to believe that this is the best we can have, which is just false. Yeah. So, I mean, for our listeners who are not as familiar with Wall Street and the banking system as uh, you are or I am, I think I think it's worth teasing out yeah. what the most fundamental problem is, which is these giant institutions take enormous but profitable risks, but mostly yeah. with other people's money. Exactly. So the, yeah. the other people's money is the people that is basically they're funding themselves with debt. Yeah. So the way to really enter that for a lay audience, uh, for, for non-expert audience, is through understanding our deposits. Okay. So deposits are very, you know, we all know we put deposits in, in the banks. And, you know, I like to quote the ex-CEO of the, my local bank over here, Wells Fargo, which you know became infamous in some of its practices uh, in recent years, uh, saying in some of the debates about various regulations, saying, we in Wells Fargo Bank, he said, we have a lot of self-funded retail dep deposits. In other words, that's my money, basically, because actually I do have a deposit with them, because that was sort of the local bank when I got to Stanford. And he said then, and listen carefully, and therefore we don't have a lot of debt. 
In other words, he forgot that my deposit is basically his debt to me. That's right. He, he owes that money to you. And he forgot that it's a liability to him. Why? Because I don't behave like a creditor. So all of us depositors are just trusting that some regulator or some FDIC is going to uh, have the debt covenants that a normal creditor would have when they lend without any collateral, without any anything backing up the, the liability. So the bank owes us money, depositors. The FDIC is insuring some 10 trillion or more of deposits. And this system is all on trust that it's all kind of there. Meanwhile, they can go and use uh, that money and then borrow ever more and more and more and more and more and build a huge, huge tower of debt with which they go take risk. Was there ever a golden age of banking regulation? Did this system ever work better? Well, it, it worked better. People often point to the period of, uh, you know, from from after the Great Depression and sort of after the Glass-Steagall Act, and they, they, they even give credit to the Glass-Steagall Act, and which we can, again, discuss whether that was sort of what, what did it or, or not. And sort of through the 50s and 60s, and banking was sort of boring, and investment banks were separated from deposit-taking banks. And somehow the, the system kind of did what we wanted it to do, except then there was, oops, the savings and loan crisis where basically, you know, interest rates went up and, and there were money market funds started in the 70s. And so already you had that little crisis. So I don't know in banking more generally, which of course is a, around the world, but say even, even here, whether there was ever kind of a, a great, great time. In this country, we always had a lot of banks, like thousands and thousands of, of small banks. And originally, they were just, we were maybe afraid of, of sort of big banks. So we created a lot of tiny banks, but they were also very fragile. They weren't allowed to, to diversify their risk and all of that. And so until you then you had the central bank, you created the Fed because of all these bank panics. So banking has always been plagued with this fragility of, of uh of this this kind of, of the banking system. And then you, in the history of banking, you created to this day more and more safety net for the system to right. kind of make it safe. But the safety net has sort of enabled more recklessness because yes. sort of perversely it created ever more complacency and also removed any kind of market forces from this system. And so progressively we got to a point where, you know, the kind of, above caring about downside risk and above almost caring about the law too. Yeah. And these safety nets, I think just speaking directly, give banking executives, finance executives, basically an incentive to take larger and larger risks with the public's money and with civil society and the economy. Because, you know, making 1% on a trillion dollar bet... <laughs> Uh, is much more profitable than making on a billion dollar bet. Right. So when you say other people's money, people often say other people's money as if it, it's only when it's borrowed money. But, you know, every corporation uses other people's money. Sometimes yes. they say, oh, you know, banks take this money into that money and they're so important. Well, every corporation takes investors' money and has, an, has some kind of a, a process by which they translate into some assets. They do a product, you know, they have a product, they have a service, whatever it is. So there's always a, a kind of a transformation from people's money, from investors' money to, to some assets, okay? And so that's not different in banking. What's distorted in banking is the fact that that there are so many that there's no markets that, that where investors actually even have. And, and, and there's the other problem, which I hope to get to, which is about, you know, the 
role of investors versus other stakeholders in general on corporations more generally. But in banking, it's much more extreme because in banking also all of us are obviously investors in the bank to the extent we're depositors as well as, you know, maybe owners of shares. And yet, what do they do in terms of what they their service to the economy is, you know, we give them subsidized funding effectively or guaranteed funding uh, to a large extent, and then they go and do whatever they feel like doing. So even to the extent that we want them to make certain loans to fund, you know, small businesses or other things, they'll do us the favor of doing that sometimes. But, you know, they'll play all kinds of games in terms of the distortions of their own investments and what has enough upside for them and what is too boring for them or whatever, that they will actually do what the economy needs them to do and fund exactly what should be funded with all this cheap funding that they have. And so in spite of that, then, it still seems like it's worth discussing regulation and figuring out how to do this better. Oh. I mean, are there signals or, or ways that government can aim regulations or directions or signals at, at the banking industry to get better outcomes? Oh, sure. You know, whether it is small business loans or protection of small depositors, how do you get there? Sure, sure. So I wrote a whole book about it, as it turns out. Uh, my book is called The Banker's New Clothes, which is sort of the emperors are naked. What's wrong with banking and what to do about it? And there we explain all the economics of banking and all the nonsense that gets said in the banking space. Not, uh, not all in the book. We have subsequent documents where we document 34 flawed claims and debunk them. So, And Banker's New Clothes is like the flawed claims made by people around the banking area, including academics. And uh, what we propose is very simple. They first and foremost, no matter what else you do, must have less debt and more equity funding. Because when you have equity funding, it absorbs the losses and at least the losses go to whoever made the gains. So at least you start by not having this privatized, you know, juiced up, leveraged gains and the losses get spread out on other people and the distortions that come from just living as a highly distressed, over-indebted, possibly insolvent corporation at all times, like the yeah. banks have. So this is a very unhealthy corporate existence when you live with such an overhang of debt. The first thing we must do for everything that you know would get better if you do that with no cost to society at all, only correction of distortion, is to make sure that they use their earnings to reinvest and then potentially they will break up on their own weight of their inefficient size, the big ones among them. And when, when you bring in market forces through equity investors who are going to tell them you're too complicated, you're too risky, I don't want to bear your downside risk. And they, the value might, of a share might decrease properly because it might be over subsidized right now. Yeah. So forcing them to decrease leverage is step one. It sounds like that's absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the number one thing has to be to substantially increase the personal risk and financial risk that people who run banks or invest in banks take when something goes wrong. Right. Right. We want these people to be wiped out. When well, something that's right. Goes wrong. In other words, you know, it used to be in the beginning of banking that before they became even limited liability corporations, and they were the last ones to become such, they were, you know, unlimited liability partnerships with fifty percent equity, and the, you know, the, the owners 
own assets were at risk. In other words, if they couldn't pay the depositors, you'd have to take it out of, you know, Jamie Dimon's house or whatever. You know what I mean? Like he would be liable for that. But of course, they wanted to grow and they wouldn't grow as partnerships. And so they made them limited liability corporations. But by that point, and combined with all the safety net, they became able to kind of live in this unhealthy existence that they do. Right. I mean, and just to be clear, my family owned a textiles manufacturing company for a very long time, and it was a hard business to run and highly capital intensive, but there was no safety net for our industry. Yep, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, if we uh, over leveraged ourselves or managed our business poorly, we went bankrupt for real. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. So the banks cannot fail. They cannot fail. If they fail, the small ones, the FDIC comes in. And yet still, you know, yeah. it's basically the FDIC comes in and then kind of covers the deposits fund and then they go home and, you know, they can start another bank. It's a, that's right. There's no market forces that even make any kind of other debt, you know, more expensive. I mean, they might pay FDIC fees for that insurance, but, you know, the small banks probably underpay deposit insurance fees and the large banks, who knows, they have unbounded implicit guarantees uh, because we can't let them fail. And, and there we have a system that just kind of can persist like this because nobody kind of counters the bad incentives that they have. Well, then whose responsibility then is it to counter and to recreate those incentives if we have this really fragile hothouse system that needs some kind of rebalancing? It's the regulators. And I can tell you, it sits with a few regulators, the combination of the FDIC, especially the Fed, which is the regulator of the sort of what's called bank holding companies, which is most of the banks right now. And they they can do it. And in fact, the law allows them to do it. And even before Dodd-Frank, it allowed them to do it. In fact, the Dodd-Frank practically mandates that they do it because Dodd-Frank told them to get rid of too big to fail and they haven't. So the Fed currently has the administrative power to regulate the banks in this way? Oh, yeah. There's no question about it. You don't even need, you know, there was a proposal bipartisan as well by Senator Sherrod Brown, together with at the time was David Vitter from Louisiana, that was didn't, didn't even it wasn't even needed that forced the Fed to require more equity. And it wasn't even ever discussed. Uh, but the Fed didn't need the law. It had authority from the beginning, from from whatever. And I can give you the precise law, banking laws that that give them the, all the authority they need. It's sort of you know the authority of the policeman to stop you and say you were driving unsafely. They have prudent prudent uh, banking regulation forever. They just don't seem to have the will to use it properly, uh, and f from all, from all times. So instead, they create these complicated things like living wills and you know complicated resolution that won't work you know, to, to, to deal with the systemic institutions. And we, we can go into that. It's just the bottom line of this is they have all authority to do much better and they don't. And they'll give you whatever excuses that other countries are not doing this and God forbid you, we do it. And they cry and cry that this would be so costly. The cost, so to speak, and I'm doing a hypothetical quotation mark, the cost is only that they will be unable to extract so much subsidies. That's no. not a social cost. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us more about that, that misconception about the costs and benefits. That's exactly. something that we so obviously love lots, to talk about. Exactly. Lots of benefits and virtually no social costs, just private costs to very few. And so that's what I stepped into a decade ago. And I just 
thought, this is unbelievable. This is crazy. How do they get away with saying this? How do they get away with this system? And, you know, guess what? They do. Yeah. So the thrust of our podcast and one of the enduring themes of it is to confront all of these neoliberal trickle-down lies, right? And they always take the same form, which is, well, we could do the right thing, but that would be bad for everyone, Yeah. (laughs) right? We could pay people more money, but that would kill jobs. We could pay more taxes, but that would kill jobs. We, you know, and it, it is always the same thing. Yep. There's always a narrative on it. And, and yeah. there's so much f- flawed narratives around. It's amazing. That's right. And if I might say so, um, you know, the neoclassical economics profession has been the enabler of all this nonsense for oh, almost yeah. a generation now, right? All these clowns with their DGSM models. And, <laughs> you know, and what about DSG? Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. And so that's why I already mentioned including academics, because I was saying that what I saw was horrifying to me as an academic, because it involved, you know, banking academics or reverse engineer right. models and all these assumptions. So basically, you know, economics is just the field of making assumptions and you know right. I, it was Abba Lerner who said economics has gained the the title of every economic transaction is a solved political problem economics has gained the title of the queen of social sciences by taking solved political problems as their subject of of uh, study and the idea of course is in economics that you just make assumptions and then you somehow it becomes sort of a religion yes yes it is extraordinarily harmful and frustrating So keep punching through the a not list of things we must do. Okay. Well, I have since then, I've spent about six years fighting that battle over basically banks' uh, use of debt uh, versus other means to fund whatever it is that they do. And I was shocked to discover that it was so hard to actually get anywhere with it. I think, you know, I've planted some seeds, but... They didn't follow what I wanted. Intellectually, I mean, I stayed in this battle, but I expanded my my horizon and revisited all my notions of corporate governance, where basically in, in economics and in even in the law and economics literature, we obsess forever on whether the managers are doing what shareholders want because it's yes. a shareholder's world. <laughs> and that's what, you know, ink was spilled you know, for the last 50 years on that one problem between the managers and the shareholders, when in fact, I realized the corporate governance problem is really between sort of the corporations and the the people who who kind of act on their behalf in the name supposedly of shareholder value creation and the rest of society and the rest of the stakeholders and and literally the, the, the economy as a whole, democracy as a whole, everything. Because the incentives of those people supposedly acting in the corporation's behalf is oftentimes in conflict with society's broad interests, and I'm including even democracy in all of them, because their incentives would be literally to weaken democratic institutions and to take over the writing of the laws. And that's more to Rob Reich and and, and people like that who, who speak to that. But you can sort of see the way in which, you know, we, I teach in a business school and what we teach them would basically say it's good investment to invest in the campaign contributions or in or in the lobbying to obtain, you know, market advantages to prevent this and that regulation supposedly for your shareholders. 
But, you know, to the extent that the shareholders are really people who want things, you know, and I'm a shareholder as well as a depositor, you know, in, in, in banks, probably through my little retirement fund, you know, I, I don't want them to be reckless like that. So it goes all the way to the law. So by now, my fashion is really on basic corporate governments and basic justice in the legal system right. as it comes to corporations. So it's the old question that people got very upset about why nobody went to jail. Okay. So why nobody went to jail? There was, you know, where the New York Times had 10 years to the financial crisis, a full blank page, if you get it in print, which I still do on Sunday, on the weekend, uh, all the full list of executives who went to jail for the financial crisis. And it was like, this page is intentionally blank, you know, lesson number 10 from the 10 years after the crisis. Why people didn't go to jail? Well, it's a complicated question that, you know, ultimately I became interested in. And, and it has to do with who we hold accountable for any kind of wrongdoing by the corporation. And, uh, and, and you sort of alluded to that in terms of liability, but, you know, think about it even in terms of other kinds of liability, even criminal liability. For example, I live in the Northern California in the Bay Area, and we have a utility here called PG&E. Well, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, has been sort of implicated with some of the fires that we had here in the last few years, even to the point that in 2018, it was supposedly responsible or even, you know, to what was called legally a manslaughter, okay? In other words, it killed 84 people in the town of Paradise, you know, in this in this campfire in, in 2018. Recently, in June, PG&E pleaded guilty as a corporation to 84 counts of manslaughter. And as the one headline said, dodged 90 years in jail for not being a person. Yeah. Yeah. So now what, where are we on justice, okay? When the corner drug dealer disobeys the what's called Controlled Substance Act for, uh, Act for dealing drugs, the mandatory jail is, is a lot, or even for drug users, so for drug users in the war on drugs. But if McKesson, as a distributor of opioids, or Walmart, as a pharmacy, distributes you know, opioids uh, from pill mill doctors, that's not drug dealing. You know yeah. what I mean? Everywhere you look, there is this sort of injustice in terms of when any kind of wrongdoing or even crime is done by corporation, you call it, or by people within corporation or for the purpose of profits in corporations. And how do we deal with that? Yeah. Well, to, I hate to say it to you, but, you know, the, my shorthand is some white dude who went to Stanford Business School. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> right? <laughs> if they can do it, do whatever they get away they do with, it, it's fine. We do it's think fine. Do what they can get away with. That's that's kind of success in in our economy. So that's right. so 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 the point the point is so if you ask me what my to do list is is to re-examine both the way we write laws, as well as enforcement processes as it comes to corporate wrongdoing, because all we do is settle for fines that actually do little. Uh, yeah. You know, a cost of doing yeah, just a cost of doing business. Right. Just a little slap. Yeah. There's all this great uh, psychological research showing that when when you find people, they go from thinking it's wrong to just the price to do the exactly just to do the thing, right? That's right. right. Yeah. The famous exactly. experiment about the daycare center, right? Yeah. They started in Israel. For, exactly, they started charging for overtime, and people just uh, did more. They were more late. Right. I wanted to ask a question about what's happening right now. Do you think? Given the eviction crisis that both small businesses and renters are facing, 
and the eviction moratoria that are that have happened across the country. Are we starting to be in the midst of a slow-moving banking crisis as this plays throughout that ecosystem? What do you see right now? Yeah, so I'm very worried about about all these different contracts, you know, that everybody signed and which contracts are worth saving, bailing out, essentially making sure they don't, the people don't default on, on all kinds of contracts. If it's a rent contract versus, you know, it's a corporate debt contract. So the way it works right now is the Fed is really supporting any promises made by large corporations that are in public markets, but the people on the small businesses and the individuals who signed contracts, they will just, you know, default and be evicted. And that's kind of a huge problem. So it is complicated to ask how to handle that. But uh, I do think if we're going, if we have a right now a pandemic and people, uh, you know, have lost jobs and all of that, that we, we have to look at what the issues are across the economy and who's most needy of of what kind of of support to some extent you know the fed is saying that well you know got to do more fiscal things more fiscal things and uh, you know it is a concern for how small businesses will survive this how individuals will survive what's uh, what's happening right now you know there are certain jobs that come about you know to deliver things or to package things for for those of us who can who can order online things, uh, but it still is a, a very, uh, you know, an economy in big trouble right now. So I think it is a concern. Well, we have kept you past time, but we always like to close with one uh, question, same question. Why do you do this work? Oh, I really feel it's my duty to do this work. I really do. I feel that for the things that I've both that I both know about and that I've experienced, there are important lessons. I just finished teaching a set of Stanford undergraduates, and I can tell you that the end was, do not get cynical. You just did a project on private prisons or on DuPont or all of this. No, the lesson is you got to fight for it. I think that this economy leaves it too much to individuals to have to fight for everything, from clean water to, yeah. to anything. But, you know, we have to have a system in which the government works for us. And I feel like if the government, if we don't understand that we need an effective government, not big or small, but just competent and effective to actually, you know, have an economy that functions, then it's that's why we're in the trouble we're in. So I really feel very urgently that I, I need to do this work. I love well, it. We are so glad you're doing the work. Thank yes. you. And thank you so much for being with us. All right. Thank you and, so much uh, thank for your work. Yeah. And uh, we should do this again soon. There's right. so much to talk about. Why do we love Anat? Because she is speaking truth to power every day. Yeah, she's day. a warrior. It's so great. And, you know, one of the things that really struck me is she directly takes on this industry and regime of regulations that are deemed to be complicated yes. and opaque and really hard in theory for the layperson to understand. And she just dials it down into very, very, right. you know, clear problems and solutions. For example, too much reliance on debt and the yeah. wrong people are getting the benefit of that. Yeah, that right. is easy to understand. And if they do something bad, nothing bad happens to them. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. And one of the things that I just was really amazed by, and this shouldn't amaze me, but we actually already have some administrative tools to 
kind of rebalance this fragile system. You know, that was really interesting that regulators actually have the power to do the rebalancing that's needed to build up a better foundation. Without permission from Mitch McConnell. Exactly. Like, More I, of that. I, like I agree, Justin, that was totally news to me. I did not know that the Fed had the broad power to reel some of these worst practices in. I suppose just knowing what I know about these institutions, it's not surprising they haven't done anything because half the people in the Fed came from the banking industry probably. And, you know, they're all in cahoots to a certain extent together. And even if you are less cynical about the actual fraud, I think that the larger problem almost always is that the people in those institutions have bought the neoliberal Kool-Aid and truly do believe uh, in a principled way that if they constrain these companies, that it will be bad for everybody. I mean, they're wrong, uh, yeah. but but uh, I think that, you know, it does sort of come down to that. You know, we're in this moment where it's quite possible we're moving through this slow moving banking crisis as as we don't get in front of the eviction moratoria crisis, et cetera. And that it is really what's going on, of course, is that we're giving primacy to certain financial contracts, obviously the ones of big corporations and their obligations and figuring out how to bail them out. And again, we're not doing it with the individual renters and individual small businesses that need help just as much, if not more. You know, the question of regulation is definitely one of the most complex and murky elements in the canon of trickle-down economics and neoliberalism. Uh, It's easy to be persuaded that regulation is bad for society because everyone can name some pesky regulation which you'd wish didn't exist. But if it was true that less regulation created better societies, then the least regulated societies would be paradises and the most regulated societies would be hellholes. And of course, the opposite is true. Highly regulated, highly taxed societies are the most uh, prosperous on planet Earth. So anyway, Diving deep on this stuff, I think, is really important so people understand uh, all of the dimensions to it. In the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk to Bharat Ramamurti, who is uh, managing director of the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute, about their proposal for a true New Deal. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.